0: What is the Bible? We started our study last week looking at this question and trying to answer it. What is the Bible in its formal character? What is the Bible in its its nature? What What is it? Is it a religious book? Is it a history book? A self-help book? You know, like the chicken soup for your soul. Um, is it a love letter like everybody talks about today, that God loves you just so much. He wants you to live your best life now, and he wrote you the Bible so that you can feel good and and make a lot of money. Or is it, uh, like some people say, a book of Jewish myths and Maxims uh what is the Bible we took some time about an hour in our last episode to look over the 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 structure of the Bible in its basic two-part system the Bible is made up of two testaments right and what we saw was that we had a first testament that testament that was made in the uh, the blood of the bulls and the goats and we had a second testament which is a New Testament which Jesus Christ said was made in his blood when he was uh, going to the cross there in Matthew chapter 26 he said this is my blood that's shed it's a new testament so what do we what what did we come to a conclusion on that with we we said what is the bible And we said the bible is a covenant corpus and that corpus that that word corpus it just means a body a collection of of similar types of literature and the collection that we see in the bible is a collection of covenants that's what scripture is Scripture by nature, Scripture in its formal character. What is it? It's covenant. And so we saw that in the two Testaments, okay? New Testament and Old Testament, Testament that, that required the death of the testator. In the Old Testament, the collection of the animals was the testator, um, from Adam up to Christ and from Christ on of the cross. We see that he is the testator that died for, for salvation. So, So at its most basic and fundamental level, two-part division, two-part structure. The Bible is covenant. It's a collection of two testaments. It's a collection of two covenants. And what we want to do today is take another look at the Bible, but looking at this Bible as covenant, as a covenant corpus, by taking a look at the eight major covenants. So cue up the music and let's do the intro, and then we can get busy looking at some of these eight major covenants in the Scripture. My name is Greg Kudrowski. This is my podcast. I call it Theology 101 because it's just kind of Bible, just basic Bible. Um, This is episode number 25. We're answering a question, what is the Bible? It's the second of two parts, and we're going to look at eight major covenants today. Now remember... This is my audio blog. I am not a pastor. I am not a teacher. I'm just the guy. And this is just me talking about my personal Bible studies. So if you want to stick around and listen to some Bible, fantastic. You're welcome. I want to talk today about the eight major covenants, okay? The Bible, like I said, is a covenant corpus. It's a body. It's a collection of covenants. Why? Because its contents, they're structured around eight major covenants that God made with man. Now, there is a ninth covenant, and we're going to probably talk about that a little later, not today, maybe not next week, but a little later. What I want to do today is just take a look at the structure of the covenants and how they provide... Or just take a look at the covenants and see how they provide the structure in the Bible. Remember, this is kind of an introductory uh, study. This is just kind of presenting an idea, because we're we're moving toward more of an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a whole, so that we can then walk through a survey of Scripture, kind of a biblical theology, based on its, its, its own structure. So I want to let the Bible speak for itself. I think language communicates, words communicate meaning, and you put words... With with meaning together in sentences, and you get you get communication. And I think God, who invented language, knows how to communicate very clearly, and he did so in the Scripture. So I don't think there's there's too much difficulty in figuring out what the Bible says. I think the difficulty comes in with us when we try and get between what God wants to tell us in the Bible and what we think the Bible ought to be telling us because of our own worldview or our own ideas or our own whatever. So if we get ourselves out of the way just to let the Bible speak for itself, we'll see that there is a, a, a very clear structure in the Bible. And that's, that's kind of what we're doing. A little introduction here today. I'm going to go a little longer today than normal. I'll just warn you, you're probably gonna have to pause it. You're gonna have to come back later. Um, i'm I'm terribly sorry if if you want a refund for your money, um, i'll I'll just I'll give you a refund for however much you have to pay for the podcast, okay. So um, my podcast, I get to talk as long as I want, and this was gonna be a little longer. I just don't want to string it out to another one. There's not enough for 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 two more. And I frankly don't think we need it. What we need is to just kind of take a look at the eight major covenants see how these covenants they, they mark these major stages in God's progressive revelation to man and we're gonna take kind of a different look at the eight major covenants today and i'm i i want to take this different approach to it just so that you see how how interrelated the whole bible is with these covenants okay so we're not going to start at the beginning, you know, Genesis 1, we're not going to work our way through a chronological study of the eight covenants. And now we could do that and I plan to do that later. That's kind of the 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 idea we're going to grab as we do a survey of the Bible after we establish the you know, the introduction and the ideas of the covenants and all of that. Then we're going to work those 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 ideas through the Bible. We're going to do that chronologically. We're starting Genesis 1 and just work our way all the way up to to Revelation, okay? I want to show you today how the Scripture crystallizes around the covenants. And I'm using that word crystallizes again. I'm borrowing it from Schofield, Schofield's old Bible, and his old notes around page 5 and 6 when he's referring to the Edenic Covenant. He says the Edenic Covenant was the first of the eight covenants, major covenants in the Bible around which all all Scripture crystallizes. And that idea of crystallizes, that's what I want to pull out today. The covenants are not just a nifty way to outline the Bible. Okay, The covenants are the Bible. And so when we start looking at the covenants, that's where we kind of get we get, we get get tripped up. And I'm going to come back to this idea of, of the covenants and tripping us up and problems right at the end, because I think there's a very key problem we need to address in modern Christianity and modern churches with regard to the covenants. They're just not something new and, and neat, or just something that you can pull out to have a neat little study here and there. Um, no, they are the Bible. That's the key. And I want to try and bring that out in this section of this lesson. I want to start where we left off. I want to start with the two testaments. Okay, so b- brief review. Okay, there's only two testaments in the Bible. Two, that's it. Two testaments, and they make up the whole Bible. Remember Hebrews 9:15. The Bible says, and for this cause, he, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he is the mediator of the New Testament, and that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. That they might be might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So you have a New Testament and a First Testament. Two testaments, that's your whole Bible. That's all we got. Okay? Hebrews 19 says, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. That first testament, obviously, the system of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Then said he, Hebrews 10 9, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second and so the first is the old testament the second is the new testament the two testaments in the bible deal very specifically with salvation with the remission of sins based on a substitutionary sacrifice that's what we saw in the last episode it says in, in hebrews 9 22 and almost all things are by the law purged with blood without the shedding of blood is no remission so that's what our testaments are about the sh- about the shedding of blood for the remission of sins Hebrews 9, 16, and 17, the same thing, where where a testament is, there must also be of necessity the death of the testator, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all, While the testator liveth. And then that's what what got us back into the the first mention and all the study that we did with Matthew 26, 28, when Jesus Christ said, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So where there is remission now under the New Testament, Hebrews 10:18 says, There is no more offering for sin because it's once for all with Jesus Christ. It's not like the animal sacrifices after one after another, every year, every day, every week. No, it's once for all. However, there is far more to the covenants in the Bible than just provision for salvation. You see, God is doing a whole lot more in creation and in history than simply saving us from hell. And I know we get myopic with that. I know we get so so focused on, on me, and I look in the mirror, and I, I say, oh, oh, God loves me so much, and I don't have to go to hell. And we think that the whole Bible is about redemption folks, I, I I get it, okay. Um, I think probably the happiest day of my life was back in 1988 when I got saved. I mean, I I had a stupid grin on my face from ear to ear that day. I did. And so my salvation is very important to me. I I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with God. I want to be in paradise. I want to be in eternity with him. And so uh, a lot of times that's the lens through which I read the Bible. But God's doing a whole lot more, okay? And so even though a testament is a covenant, folks, there is there is more to the covenants in the Bible than just two testaments. There's a whole lot more. But the New Testament, because we've been studying that here the last episode and touched on it here as an intro, this New Testament is going to give us a natural and perfect place to start our study today about talking about and, and bringing out this idea that the The whole Bible, the whole content of the Bible, crystallizes around the covenants. Let's start with this, the New Testament and the New Covenant, okay? The New Testament and the New Covenant. The New Testament is a provision in the New Covenant. You see, Jesus Christ is the mediator of the New Testament. We know that. We saw that. We spent time in that in our last episode. But Jesus Christ is also the mediator of the New Covenant, And the two are not the same. Yes, I just said that, okay? I said that. Um, The New Testament and the New Covenant, they're not the same. Now, here's Hebrews 9.15. We just read that. For this cause, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the New Testament. So Jesus Christ became the mediator of the New Testament, this new system of substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins. He became the mediator of the New Testament when he shed his blood and died on the cross. We got that, right? But the Bible also says, it's Hebrews 8, one chapter before Hebrews 9, what we just read, Hebrews 9.15, we'll go back one chapter, Hebrews 8, 6 to 8, because the Bible says that Jesus Christ, with his death on the cross— also became the mediator of the new covenant, the new covenant that will replace the old Mosaic covenant. Okay, this passage says, Hebrews 8, 6-8, But now hath he, Jesus Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. For if that the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So he's referring to the new covenant back in Jeremiah 31. We'll get there in just a second. But observe that there is a difference between the New Testament and And the New Covenant, okay? And just look at the difference, or at least look at this key difference, okay? Key difference, because I'm sure we could talk about differences and similarities for for hours on end. The New Testament is related to salvation. The New Testament is about the remission of sins by a blood sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. And the New Testament, listen, listen, the New Testament is given to all men, Jew and Gentile alike, The new covenant, however, is given only to Israel. And the new covenant deals with a whole lot more than just salvation and the remission of sins. For so, so for our purposes right now, for here in this study today, I want to focus on how the New Testament is a provision of the New Covenant. I want you to see how they're related. You know, where so I I mean, back to Schofield. The, the scripture crystallizes around these these covenants. Okay, so they 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 provide a structure, and this structure is interrelated with with everything else. So the whole content of the Bible hangs like a crystallized structure around these covenants. So now the passage that I mentioned in in Hebrews eight, it's a it's a citation. It's a quote. Uh, from the Old Testament. It's Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, is the full-mentioned passage of the New Covenant. It's where we basically start to begin to develop our theology of what the New Covenant is. Let me read this to you, and just pay attention. When I get to the stipulations, I'll start emphasizing You know what what this covenant has to do with, but there's a lot going on here, and we're going to touch on quite a bit of it today. It says in Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was and husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law, here's the stipulations, okay? He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of uh, Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, here it comes, I will, okay? This is the covenant, I will. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them, unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So the Testament portion when we're talking about the New Testament, you know, the remission for the remission of sins, that portion of the covenant, the stipulations that deal with the salvation, that's found primarily, not not only, but primarily in the last part of the last verse, where he says, for I will forgive their iniquity, there's forgiveness, and I will remember their sin no more. There's your eternal redemption. Okay, that's Hebrews 9 and 10. That was a reference in chapter 8 of Hebrews, and then later it's developed in 9 and 10. But the New Covenant is the whole passage. It's it's Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, and it has Many more stipulations in addition to the last couple that deal with salvation. You see, God made some very specific promises to Israel in the preceding verses, the the verses that precede that last one that deals with salvation. And the point to make, or what we want to see here today in this episode right now, is that the New Testament is, is a portion of, but it is inextricably tied. You cannot separate it from the New Covenant. It's impossible to separate the two. The New Testament is a provision of the New Covenant. The New Covenant is much more broad in scope than the New Testament, okay? But but notice how the New Testament, with its broader scope, it crystallizes around the New Testament. And then notice how the New Testament is couched in the stipulations of the New Covenant. So in order to understand the New Testament, you need to understand the New Covenant. And if we do not understand the New Covenant, we're, we're going to have a real hard time understanding the New Testament. Okay, the New Testament, it is in effect and active today. I want you to think about this. Like I said, the New Testament is different than the New Covenant. They're, they're tied together, yes, but there's there's some, some very distinct differences. The New Testament, which is in effect and active today, it's tied to the New Covenant, right? The New Covenant was promised in Jeremiah. That's what we just read, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, okay? The New Covenant promised in the Old Testament in Jeremiah. The New Covenant, according to Hebrews 8, was ratified on the cross, Okay, it was made official, ratified on the cross with the death of Christ. But the new covenant is not active and in force until the second coming. And so the New Testament is active and effective today. The new covenant, though ratified on the cross, is not put into effect completely until the second coming of Jesus Christ, after those days. So the New Testament is inextricably tied To the new covenant, and to understand the New Testament today, you have to go back to passages like Jeremiah to see how it relates to the new covenant. So, do you see how like crystals connect to other crystals? That that the, the the content of Scripture, New Testament, it's it's tied to the new covenant. The new covenant to the New Testament, they're not the same, but they're tied together. But let's not miss the fact that the new covenant is inextricably related to the Mosaic covenant. You see, to understand the New Covenant today, we have to go back to Jeremiah and start looking at uh, the—or if we understand the New Testament, we have to go back to look at the New Covenant. To understand the New Covenant, folks, we have to go back and look at the Mosaic Covenant. So let's look at that relationship, the New Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, God references the Mosaic Covenant. So when he promises Israel the New Covenant, he references—he gives reference to— the Mosaic covenant. And, and just, just understand that that the new covenant was given in the context of the law of Moses, the, the prophets. Okay. We're still in the quote unquote Old Testament. We're still reading the law. It's under the law of Moses. But listen to the to the passage again. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Next verse, Jeremiah 31:32 says not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt okay that's the mosaic covenant and he says which my covenant they break although I was an husband unto them okay so god says look i was a husband to israel and he likens the relationship he had with israel under the mosaic covenant to a marriage that was broken So Israel broke that marriage covenant with her infidelity, with her apostasy. She turned from God. She was unfaithful to God, and she committed spiritual adultery with her idolatry by chasing after other gods. But under the new covenant, you see there's going to be a reconciliation. The Lord is going to be Israel's God, and Israel will be God's covenanted people again. That's that's the context of the new covenant. He says, he says in Jeremiah 31, 31, behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. Okay, it's not like that that Mosaic covenant, the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them. And he says, Look, by this but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Okay, after the tribulation, the second coming, saith the Lord, I'm going to put my law in their in their inward parts, right on their hearts. And He says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's going to be a reconciliation. God is going to to, to be reconciled with His wife, Israel. So, w- without without going deep into the details, just suffice it to say for now that the new covenant. Is clearly and directly, it is inextricably, inseparably tied to the Mosaic covenant. And we could ask ourselves, you know, why why that is? You know, why, why is it that the new covenant is tied to the Mosaic covenant? You think, well, the Mosaic covenant was an utter failure because of Israel's sin and rebellion. And here we have the new covenant. So why is it? That that these two are so tied together. And you know, that would be a good question. And the answer, the answer would be found in the relationship between the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant. So let's talk about those three covenants and how these three covenants are tied together. The new covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant are inextricably tied to the Abrahamic covenant. God made an unconditional covenant, an unconditional agreement or arrangement, a formal, whatever you want to call it, an unconditional covenant with Abraham and Abraham's physical descendants, his physical seed okay, through Isaac and Jacob, Jacob who was later called Israel. So the, the Abrahamic covenant, now the Abrahamic covenant is fascinating. Okay, A lot of people, they go back to Genesis 12 and they point to the first three verses and they say, look, the, the Abrahamic covenant. Well, yes and no. Folks, I mean, once you get to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 to 3, yeah, yeah, God starts to make a covenant with with Abraham and his descendants in, in Genesis chapter 12. But there are so many other passages. Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. There's so many other passages that come after that where God develops and defines and describes what he's offering um, Abraham in this covenant. So look, Abraham was offered the covenant in Genesis 12. And then that that covenant and that covenant offer, that agreement went through several modifications, if you want to think about it that way. God added to it, he defined it, he further described it, what was offered in Genesis 12, and then he finally ratified it in Genesis 22 after Abraham proved himself at the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, I want to look at just two key passages for our, for our discussion here. Two Two key passages that have some very, very salient elements for our discussion. Obviously, Genesis 12, 1-3. Here's the original agreement. Here's where God offers Abraham this covenant. The Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. I will make of thee a great nation. So here we have again, God saying, I will, I will, I will. Unconditional covenant. God is binding himself with an oath to Abraham. So God says, and I will make of thee a great nation. That's an unconditional promise. I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So there's the initial covenant, the initial offer of the covenant to to, to Abraham. And then I want to take you to Genesis Genesis 17. Okay, And just listen to what God says to, to Abraham within the context of this same covenant. God's still developing this covenant. God is still working with Abraham. He's still fleshing out the details, Okay, hammering out the deal. And in Genesis 17, verse 1, he says, And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant, he says, between me and thee. And will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name be any more, or neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. Verse 6 And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee, and I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, I mean... Obviously, there's a lot going on in these passages, okay? Genesis 12, Genesis 17, especially in these eight verses we read in Genesis 17. Holy cow! But let's simplify it for our purposes here. We can work out the details later, and we will, Lord willing. Because, look, because of the Abrahamic covenant and its unconditional promises to Abraham and his seed, his physical descendants, let's just say simplify it, okay, for our purpose here, and let's just say everyone gets in. Okay, Because of the unconditional nature of these promises, I will do this, I will do that, I will do this, for you, for your seed, everlasting, I will. It's unconditional. Everybody gets in. So all of Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob have been unconditionally promised blessings from God. This includes spiritual blessings, physical blessings. This includes the blessing of the promised land, which is the land of Canaan or the the land of Palestine, the, the Philistines. Um, this includes uh, blessing over the rest of the nations of the world. Abraham's descendants will be kings, it's said in Genesis chapter 17, kings who rule over and bless the Gentile nations. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant of great promise. Okay, I, I don't think there's any other covenant, even the New Covenant. Okay, because it harkens back to the Abrahamic. This is the covenant of great promise. It is unconditional, it is eternal, and it is for Israel, all of Abraham's physical descendants through his son Isaac and through Isaac's son Jacob, who was later called Israel. Do you see that? The Abrahamic covenant. But with the conditional Mosaic covenant, everybody ended up being excluded. All Israel was excluded because of their disobedience. So so you get Here's, I'm going to read you some passages here in a minute, but let's just set the stage so you kind of know where I'm going with this, this thought. In the Abrahamic covenant, you have this huge, unconditional promise. Abraham, I am going to bless you and, all, and your, your physical descendants. It is an everlasting covenant. It's unconditional. I will, I will, I will, I will. So in a general sense, they all got in, every one of Abraham's physical descendants through through Isaac and Jacob, all of Israel gets in. They're in. But here comes the Mosaic Covenant. Now the Mosaic Covenant was conditional. And listen to what the Mosaic Covenant says. Um, this is Exodus 19:5 to8. This is the first indication of the covenant. This is where God offers a covenant to Israel. Exodus 19, 5 to 8. They just came out of Egypt. He takes them up to Horeb, Mount Sinai, and he says, Now, therefore, if," if... If you have the habit of marking your Bible, you ought to mark that word, if. It's followed by then, later, okay? If, then. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then... Ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. Now listen, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So God says, if you will obey my voice, if you will keep my, co- my covenant, then you will be my people, then you will be my kingdom of priests, then you will be my holy nation. And Israel said, deal. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so in Exodus 20, you get the, the, the Ten Commandments, and in 21, 22, and 23, you get some further laws that God gives to Israel just to, just to let them know, hey, here's what's coming. And then in Exodus 24, this Mosaic covenant is ratified, okay, is ratified by the shedding of blood. Now listen to what Exodus 24, 3-7 to says, it's the same thing we saw in Exodus 19, but here it becomes official. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. Folks, that's the Mosaic covenant. It depends on Israel. Now verse 4, he continues. Let's read down to verse 7. Exodus 24, 4 says, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning, building an altar under the hill and uh, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men unto the children of Israel, was offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. I mean, this is a big deal. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And in verse 7, here we go. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people and they said all that the lord hath said we will do and be obedient well israel could never keep up their their end of the agreement they could never do all that the lord commanded them in the law of moses and so again, to simplify this for our purpose here, we're just looking at the the way the covenants give us a structure in the Bible, the way that the content of the Bible hangs off of these covenants like like crystals, okay, that crystallizes around the covenants. In the unconditional Abrahamic covenant of promise, all Israel gets in on the blessing, right? It's unconditional. It's for for Abraham and all of his physical descendants through Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and everybody gets in. It's unconditional. But under the conditional Mosaic covenant, they are all excluded from blessing because they failed to meet the condition of the covenant, the condition of total and complete obedience. And this is where God speaks of divorcing Israel, saying that he was a husband unto them. Now, don't think that that at the first sin that God just threw them out. I mean, there are, there are seven major... um. Renewals of this covenant, and we're going to look at those later. Okay, seven major renewals of the covenant, all the way up to the to the end, the Babylonian captivity, when God says, "No, we're done." And at the Babylonian captivity, when the times of the Gentiles began, that's when basically the covenant of Moses was 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 done—not the law of Moses, but the covenant of Moses—and so. With the Abrahamic covenant, everybody gets in. The conditional Mosaic covenant, they're all excluded because they, they failed in their total and complete obedience. God speaks of divorcing Israel. He says, I was a husband to them. When they failed in their obedience, the Israelites broke the Mosaic covenant, and God likened that breaking of the covenant to a divorce. They had entered into a holy matrimony, if you want to call it that, on Mount Sinai, and covenanted together. But Israel was unfaithful to her Lord. She turned her back on the Lord, apostasy, and she gave herself to other people, other lovers, other gods, idolatry. But, but God now, here's and here's God, God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, right? He promised, and he made provision for the restoration of Israel, even though they were unfaithful, broke, they invalidated the Mosaic covenant, okay? Okay. Because of the Abrahamic covenant, God will restore Israel. He's got unconditional promises based on the Abrahamic covenant. The problem in in the meantime is this Mosaic covenant, because Israel failed to keep the Mosaic covenant, and they're all excluded. Therefore, the promised provision of restoration is the new covenant. So notice again the connection of the new covenant with the mosaic covenant behold the days come this is jeremiah 31:31 31, 31. behold the days come saith the lord that i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not according to the covenant that i made with their fathers in the day that i took them by the hand and bring them out of egypt which my covenant they break although i was an husband unto them And then he goes on, of course, and says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and he gives them the rest of the stipulations. And here we see that these three covenants are inseparably tied together. Unconditional promises. Everybody gets in through the the Abrahamic covenant, but then there comes the Mosaic covenant, and God establishes his 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 standards for participation in His kingdom, which is complete and total obedience. Israel fails miserably. Everybody's excluded. So how do we get them back into the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, you get them in through the New Covenant. And now think about this: the Abrahamic covenant started in Genesis 12. The Mosaic Covenant picked up in in Exodus 19 and goes all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, or actually up to the to the cross where the New Covenant is is ratified in the death of Christ, and then the New Covenant takes us all the way through the New Testament now into eternity. Folks, if if we were just talking about these three covenants, we could easily say the Bible is a book of covenants. They make up the vast majority of the entire Bible. Genesis 12 all the way through the end of the New Testament. The unconditional Abrahamic covenant that began in Genesis 12 promised everlasting, eternal blessing to Israel, Abraham's physical descendants. The conditional Mosaic covenant laid out God's expectations for those who would be his people. And Israel failed miserably in those expectations, the expectation of complete and total obedience always. So God promised them a new covenant, which is also unconditional. And that new covenant brings in the original Abrahamic covenant into its eternal fulfillment. So you say, well, now, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Now, wait, who gets in? Does everybody get in? Who gets in? Who gets the benefit and the blessing of the new covenant? Is it just everyone again? You see, everyone, all Israel— is promised blessing in the Abrahamic covenant, all Israel is excluded from that blessing and placed under the curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 because of the Mosaic covenant, and all Israel can be blessed under the new covenant if they meet the conditions. So now what do we need to talk about? Well, you see, if we're going to talk about conditions for participating in the blessings of the new covenant— okay which are basically the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant that were lost on the Mosaic Covenant. We need to talk about the Palestinian Covenant. <laughs> I mean the Palestinian Covenant. that's Deuteronomy 29 and 30 um, I can't think of of I can't think of a chapter I have spent more time in the last two years than Deuteronomy 30. It's it is fascinating. It is I mean what God did in that in that chapter. It's, it is it's amazing okay the Palestinian Covenant is found in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. Now listen like I said before and I'll probably be saying it again we're not going to get into all the deep weeds and all the details yet we're gonna we'll, we'll do that later but participation in the new covenant is conditioned by the Palestinian Covenant of Deuteronomy 30. The Palestinian covenant was given within the context of the Mosaic covenant, and it actually the Palestinian covenant actually refers back to the Mosaic law and requires Israelites to obey the Mosaic law if they want the blessings of the new covenant. So you can't just say, ah, new covenant, no law. No, I'm sorry. They're inextricably tied together. All scripture crystallizes around the eight major covenants of the Bible. Schofield nailed it. And I think at this point in our study, it kind of seems to be an understatement made for emphasis. I mean, it's all tied together. All Scripture crystallizes around the eight major covenants. Deuteronomy chapter 30, Let's just look at a couple of things in the Palestinian Covenant because God obviously, if you've read Deuteronomy 28, you know God anticipated the failure and the resulting dispersion of Israel into captivity based on their breaking of the Mosaic Covenant. God said it's going to happen, okay? Deuteronomy 28: 15 to 68. I mean God said, you're gonna this is what you're going to do. And then in Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, when he starts talking about this this Palestinian covenant, God says, listen, listen, Israel, listen. It shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee. You see, God starts out this this chapter, Deuteronomy 30, such a key chapter in salvation history, in the history of Israel, and even in our history. We're going to see that in a minute. God says, look, when all these things come to pass, when I've cursed you, when I've I've thrown you out of the land, when you're in dispersion, you're in captivity, when this comes to mind, when you're out among the nations. Remember Daniel chapter 9? He was out among the nations, and he remembered Deuteronomy 30. God says, look, look. I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you a provision for restoration. Here's the promise of God, Deuteronomy 30, verse 2. He says, he says look, when you're out among the nations, whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God, and shalt obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart, with all thy soul. And so God gives them a provision for restoration if they would repent and devote themselves to him and to him alone, to return and obey, to repent and follow God in devotion to him alone. This is an additional covenant. Okay, in Deuteronomy 29, one. This is why we include Deuteronomy twenty-nine with Deuteronomy thirty. Both of these chapters form the Palestinian covenant, although the stipulations of the covenant are found exclusively in in Deuteronomy thirty. We use we we tie in Deuteronomy twenty-nine because of what verse one says. The rest of Deuteronomy twenty-nine sets the context for what comes in thirty. Deuteronomy twenty-nine one says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses. To make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So, this covenant in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 is an additional covenant that the Bible says, is beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. Horeb is Mount Sinai. So beside the Mount Sinai covenant, beside the Mosaic covenant, in addition to the Mosaic covenant that the Lord made with Israel in Horeb, Mount Sinai, you have this additional covenant that he made with them in Moab— right before they went into the promised land under Joshua to take uh, possession of what God promised them. Okay, these are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab at the end of Deuteronomy, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. So in this Palestinian covenant, now let's go back over to Deuteronomy 30. God promised Israel's return to the land. He promised Israel a restoration of his, his good relationship with them in the promised land that he originally gave to Abraham under the Abrahamic covenant. So again, we we hearken back to the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional promises given in the Abrahamic covenant. If Israel wants to participate with them, participate in them, they need to meet the conditions of the Palestinian covenant, Deuteronomy 30, verses 3 to 5. Bible says that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity. When? Verse 2. When they return to the Lord and obey his voice with all their heart and all their soul. So repentance and devotion. When they turn from sin to God, then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee and will return and gather thee from all the nations. Whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. If any of thine be be driven out unto the outmost part of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee, and from thence will he fetch thee, and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy father. So there's the promise, but it's based on the return and the obedience. It's based on the if, on the conditions. They repent and they turn to God. They return and obey with all their heart and all their soul. When they do that, God will do this. So in this covenant of Deuteronomy 30, God promised not only their return to the land and their restoration in the land, but look at verse 6, or at least listen to verse 6. I'm going to read it to you. In verse 6, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God promised a future circumcision of the heart to Israel. And the circumcision of the heart would result in life for those who met the conditions of the covenant. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. You see, God promised a circumcision of the heart to cut away the heart from the flesh of man, to separate the innermost part of man why? Because this is one of the first prophecies of the new birth by the Spirit of God. In God's progressive revelation, he gave more details about this circumcision of the heart and the life that he would give in the circumcision of the heart. He talked about that in Ezekiel 37, 1-14 in the prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. Where he said, He said, Preach to the wind, preach to the four corners of the earth. And the wind came, it was the Spirit of God, verse 14, to dwell in his people and make them alive. That's exactly what, what Jesus Christ was talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3, when he told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. He's referencing Ezekiel 37. And he says, you must be born again, made alive by the Spirit of God to, to participate in the kingdom of God. And that's why he reproved Nicodemus so much. He says, look, you're a teacher in Israel. You're a Pharisee, and you don't know the simple prophecy of the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 that ties in with Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14? That's what I'm talking about. So in the in the promise of the Palestinian covenant, God says, if you repent, if you devote yourself to me, follow me with, with all your heart and all your soul, obey me. It's the repentance and returning to God. If you'll do that, I'll circumcise your heart and you'll live. That's a promise. That's something else. And God also promised in the Palestinian covenant that Israel would be the head of all Gentile nations, just as he said in the Abrahamic covenant. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 7. And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and on them that hate thee, which persecute thee. And so he will put down the enemies of Israel as he raises Israel up, and Israel becomes the head of the nations according to the promise. So all this means that everything that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant, which, I mean, seriously, I mean, Genesis 12 to 22 at least, Genesis 12 22 up to 28, all of the the stuff that just comes with the Abrahamic covenant, it's amazing. Everything that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant, everything that Israel lost because they broke the Mosaic covenant, and everything that is offered to Israel in the new covenant, All of that became based on the conditions established by God in the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30. God conditioned Israel's future blessing and life in the land upon their conversion from sin to him in complete submission and obedience. It is repentance and devotion turned from sin and self to God in complete and full submission and obedience to him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law. Remember I said, Palestinian covenant harkens back to the Mosaic covenant, requires Israel to obey the law of Moses. If you keep his commandments, my commandments, he says, if you keep the statutes written in this book of the law, and if thou turn unto the lord thy god with all thy heart and with all thy soul then god will bless them he says in deuteronomy 30:15 to 19 listen this is the last passage in this chapter it's amazing deuteronomy 30:15 see i have said before thee this day life and good and death and evil In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But, but, verse 17, if thine heart turn away so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish, and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over the Jordan to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, Israel, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, says God, choose life, that that both thou and thy seed may live. And yeah, I'm sorry, um, John Calvin, God said, choose, okay? God didn't choose for them. He commanded Israel, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. So the new covenant provided a way for rebellious Israel, rebellious Israel condemned under the law of, of Moses, the law of the Mosaic Covenant, It provided a way for them to enter into the fullness of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. But it wasn't automatic. Not just everybody gets in because they're physical descendants of Abraham. You know, that was one of the main contentions of Christ with Israel during the Gospels. You know, just because you're a a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham, doesn't mean you get in. God placed conditions on entrance into the new covenant. And he did so in the covenant of Deuteronomy 29 and 30, the covenant that we're calling the Palestinian Covenant. We call it that because of its relationship to the land of Palestine, that land of the Philistines that was promised to Israel in the Abrahamic Covenant. So God will use these covenants—the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Palestinian, the New Covenant—God's going to use these covenants to purge out the rebels. Now, listen to that phrase. That's That phrase is so important— to purge out the rebels of Israel, allowing only the repentant faithful to enter into his kingdom. Let me read to you a prophecy Ezekiel 20, verses uh, 35 to 38. Ezekiel 20, 35. It says, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, God says to Israel, and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Okay, it's talking about the new covenant. But verse 38 is what I want you to listen to. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me, and I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. He says, I will purge out from among you the rebels. That's what all this is about. You see, the Abrahamic covenant gave unconditional blessing for Israel, all Israel, everybody gets in. But then the Mosaic covenant, you see the Abrahamic blessings are conditioned in the Mosaic Covenant upon complete obedience, because that is God's expectation for all those who would enter into his kingdom. Complete obedience. So under the law of Moses, the law of the Mosaic Covenant, everybody fails. All Israel is excluded. But here comes the new covenant, and God made provision for Israel to once again enter into the promised blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant. But not all Israel gets in. You see, God's going to purge out the rebels. Not all Israel gets in. Paul understood this. Listen to Romans nine four to six. Romans nine four to six. He says, "Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promise? Whose are the fathers, and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came? Who is over all? God blessed forever. Amen." Verse six. Not as though the word of God hath, hath taken none effect, for they are not. All Israel, which are of Israel. God's going to purge Israel. Not all the physical descendants are Israel. God's going to purge out the rebels. Yes, Israelites from all 12 tribes are going to get in. Under the new covenant, you're going to have Israelites from all 12 tribes. That's Romans 11, 26 and 27. Paul says in Romans 11, 26, and 27 that all Israel shall be saved. Israelites from all 12 tribes. You can have representatives of all 12 tribes, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer. Second coming shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, unto them when I shall take away their sins. So there's going to be Israelites from all 12 tribes, all Israel, all 12 tribes shall be saved, but not all Israel gets in, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. God's going to purge out the rebels first, and he does that through the Palestinian covenant. Hebrews 9.27, Esaias also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. That's the Palestinian covenant. God will purge out the rebels. Those who refuse to repent and follow God, he will purge out the rebels with the conditions established in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now, we're at about an hour. Is your noodle baked yet? You still got a little bit in there? Well, let me throw you a little a little soteriological side note. Think about this. From Deuteronomy chapter 30 on, okay, from Deuteronomy chapter 30 on in biblical history, salvation under the law and then later during the church age. So, what we're talking about is in general, salvation under both testaments, from Deuteronomy 30 on, becomes based on the conditions of the Palestinian covenant. Okay? Here's your soteriological side note. Remember that when the Apostle Paul wrote the most famous and well-known chapter in the Bible on how to be saved during the Church Age, Romans 10. You know, you take somebody through the Romans Road, that's where you stop. You always just stop at Romans 10, because that's where the, the passage is, Romans 10. When Paul wrote Romans 10, his mind was so completely absorbed and fixed on Deuteronomy 30, the Palestinian covenant, that he quotes it in context. Okay, here's the passage that we always run to about salvation. Here's Paul's concise and succinct explanation of salvation during the church age. For us today, Paul says, Romans 10, 9 to 13, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that the Lord Jesus, oh, that thy Okay, I'll start over. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whoso believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord... Overall is rich unto all that call upon him, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? 10 Romans 10, 9 to 13. Famous passage, the end of the Romans road. But have you ever paid attention to the three verses before that passage? That that salvation context, that salvation passage, verses 9 to 13. Have you ever paid attention to what was in Paul's mind? right before he said those words. In that salvation context, the verses immediately preceding that passage, Paul quotes the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14. He quotes Deuteronomy 30, 12 to 14, in Romans 10, 6 to 8. Let me read those verses to you. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. Okay, that's, that's, That's the context right before he says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, that's what he's he's quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 to 14. Deuteronomy 30, 12 says, It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldst say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. So Paul's mind, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, was stayed on the Palestinian covenant when he was explaining salvation during our dispensation the church age. Think about that. Like I said... Before Paul ever said that thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, right before he said that, he quoted three verses from Deuteronomy 30. And this is why Paul always called sinners to repentance and faith. He called sinners to turn from sin and turn to God in full and complete devotion to him. These are the conditions for salvation established by God in the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30. These are conditions for entrance into the salvation that was ultimately provided for in the new covenant. Now listen, listen, don't get confused. We're going to look at all the details later. We do not look back and have to obey the law of Moses. The law of Moses was given to Israel alone. Now, Israel has to obey the entire conditions of the the Palestinian covenant because they will be participating in the full and entire stipulations of the new covenant. We Gentiles are only participating in the New Testament portion of the new covenant, the salvation portion, the spiritual portion, the forgiveness of sins and the new life that new birth that's in Christ by the spirit. That's what we get and so we obey the spiritual conditions that are found in the Palestinian covenant, the repentance and faith, the turning from sin and self and turning to God. Okay, we don't turn back to the law of Moses and have to under, have to obey the law of Moses. That's, that's for Israel, okay? But what I want you to see here is this is why Paul called sinners to repentance and faith. Folks, salvation is not... By faith, just faith, just believe. There's there's a repentance there. God calls us to a conversion because of the Palestinian covenant. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. Paul says, And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you, and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, he says uh, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And those are the two conditions, the main conditions that are found in the Palestinian covenant. This is because the salvation that God provided for and then offered to Israel. Now think about this. The salvation based on the New Testament of Christ's shed blood and substitutionary sacrifice, that salvation was rejected by Israel. So God took that very same New Testament salvation, the salvation offered to Israel, he took it out to the Gentiles directly. Acts 28, 28. Paul says, Be it known therefore unto you, and Paul is addressing Jewish leaders in Rome, Be it known therefore unto you, Jews, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. Notice the definite article, the. It is not a salvation or another salvation or some salvation. God sent to the Gentiles the very same salvation he provided for the nation of Israel. That's Acts 28, 28. It is the salvation promised in the Abrahamic covenant, the salvation that was lost in the Mosaic covenant, the salvation that was promised in the New Covenant, and the salvation that is conditioned by the Palestinian Covenant. That is the salvation that God sent to us, the Gentiles, during the Church Age. From Deuteronomy 30 on, salvation for Israel, and later in the Church Age, forgiveness of sins and eternal life, salvation. It is based on the conditions stipulated in the Palestinian Covenant. God made provision for salvation in the final stipulations of the New Covenant— those stipulations that later became the basis for the New Testament. And God offered that salvation first to Israel in the Gospels, and the book of Acts, and then after the rejection of the offer, he took it, the salvation, he took it out to the Gentiles through the Apostle Paul and during the church age. And God conditioned participation in the life and blessing of the New Testament. Israel's participation in the full blessings of the New Covenant. He conditioned all that on the stipulations of the Palestinian covenant of Deuteronomy 30. And so we see again, all the Bible crystallizes around the covenants. If you want to understand salvation today, I mean, if you want to understand the fullness of salvation, the depth, the breadth, the scope, you need to understand the Abrahamic, Mosaic, New, and Palestinian covenants. Because within those covenants, the majority of our soteriology is established and developed. But now, what about a future salvation and kingdom that God promised in the Palestinian covenant? Because this kingdom for the faithful Israelites, well, what what about that kingdom? You know, in Deuteronomy 30, verse uh, verse 7, it said, The Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies, and upon them that hate thee, which persecute thee, and he'll put down the enemies of of Israel as he raises up Israel and puts them as the head of the nations. And so, wait, what, what about this future eschatological kingdom of Israel, where Israel's over the nations? Well, where does that fit in? Where does that fit in? Well, that future kingdom fits in through the Davidic covenant. You see, this future and unified kingdom, and I'm going to explain that term, unified kingdom, later is very important. That future kingdom, which is Israel's sure hope, is inextricably tied to the Davidic covenant that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, now listen, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to read it here in just a minute, is based on promises given in the Mosaic covenant. Yeah, promises in the Mosaic covenant, specifically in Deuteronomy 17. And of course, as we have seen before, the Mosaic covenant is based on the Abrahamic covenant. So the kingly promises and prophecies of Deuteronomy 17 and the Mosaic Covenant are based on earlier promises to Abraham like those we saw in Genesis 17. So let's start there. The Abrahamic Covenant unconditionally promised kings to Israel, kings to reign over Israel while Israel reigned over the Gentile nations. Now listen to the un- unconditional covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 17. This should be familiar And when Abraham was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant, Abraham, is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name be any more Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. That's verse 6. And verse 16, it says to Sarah, and I will bless her, Sarah, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So the Mosaic Covenant conditioned the kingdom of Israel on the nation's complete obedience to the law. So God promised to, to Abraham that a multitude of people would come from him. He's going to bless his his, his physical descendants, okay? They're going to be like the, the stars of the sea or the stars of the sky, the, the sand of the seashore, they're going to be a bunch. And that kings will come from Abraham and Sarah. And then we move into the Mosaic Covenant. We see that, that the Mosaic Covenant conditioned this kingdom of Israel. They conditioned that kingdom on the nation's complete obedience to the law. You remember that? Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that's when all the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So it was conditioned upon obedience in the Mosaic covenant like we saw before. And so within the context of the Mosaic covenant, In the Mosaic Law, we see God's further development of the prophetic promise of kings to reign over Israel like he promised to Abraham in in Genesis 17, while Israel in turn reigned over the nation, Israel head over the nations, the Gentiles. Listen to what this passage says in Deuteronomy 17, it's verses 14 to 20. God says to Israel, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt, dwelt there, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee, that thou mayest not set stranger a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So he has to be an Israelite. And then he goes on and says in verse 18, And it shall be when he, that that new king, sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law, it's the law of Moses, in a book, out of that book, uh, which is before the priests of the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. It's the same condition. Okay, that we saw in, in Exodus 19. He has to obey completely and totally. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he uh, turn not aside from the commandment to the right or the left, uh, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So the king, a king over the kingdom given to Israel has always been in God's plan. but they, But they lost it. Okay, under the Mosaic covenant, Israel lost the kingdom because of their lack of obedience to the Mosaic law. That's Deuteronomy 28 and verse 15. Here's the condition. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. And one of these curses is found in verse 36, which says, The Lord shall bring thee and thy king, which thou shalt set over thee, unto a nation... Which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. Now, much could be said about Israel's kings and their failure to keep all the words of the law to do them. Even the best of them, even David, the king who was a man after God's own heart, committed murder and adultery with the wife of Uriah. But when Israel's failure reached its fullness, ultimately in 606 BC with the Babylonian captivity, The times of the Gentiles started, and again, we'll get into that later in in a little bit more detail, but the times of the Gentiles is a time when the Gentile nations rule over the earth instead of Israel. And so they rule over the earth, including Israel, and we're still living in the times of the Gentiles because the Gentiles rule the earth, not Israel. But God gave a promise to His nation. Okay, not only in the Abrahamic covenant, but also in the Palestinian covenant. Remember, he said, "The Lord thy God," thirty, Deuteronomy thirty verse seven. The Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecute thee. Okay, so God promised to put enemy that the Israel's enemies down. Therefore, Israel would again be the head of the nation and God's nations and God's kingdom. Well, that was, of course, being part of the Palestinian covenant conditioned upon Israel's repentance. And that begged a very practical question in the minds of God's people. Well, what if Israel, or what if, you know, what if Israel or enough Israelites never repented? What if this unconditional promise of kings over nations that God gave in the Abrahamic covenant? With the Davidic covenant of Second Samuel seven, God ended all doubt. Okay, God gave Israel the unconditional hope of a king and a throne and a kingdom. It's it's everlasting, it's eternal. Now note the multiple "I will" statements that God made to David in this covenant. This is Second Samuel chapter seven, starting in verse eight. Okay, Second Samuel seven eight. This is the Davidic covenant. Now listen to this. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat for following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men uh, that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. This is a promise. They're going to go back to the land. Israel gets the land. It's theirs for eternity, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Verse 11, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled and and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, he says to David, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be uh, my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. There's the sure mercies of David as I took it from Saul, whom I uh, put away before thee. Now, verse 16, here it is. And thine house, David, and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne, David, shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. God promised David a house, a kingdom, and a throne. And he said that house, kingdom, and throne would be forever, eternal. This is the unconditional Davidic covenant. So the Davidic covenant firmly and eternally establishes Israel as the head of all nations with the son of David, one of David's lineage, one of his house, to sit upon his throne over the unified kingdom forever. This covenant promise is what we refer to as the Davidic kingdom, the messianic kingdom, because the Messiah is the son of David. We call it the millennium. It's that eschatological kingdom of 1,000 years that once established at the second coming of Christ will continue forever. So from this point on, 2 Samuel 7 on, the kingdom of, was no longer an if for Israel. It became only when. So we see the great eschatological hope of Israel. It was based on the general promises of the Abrahamic covenant, the provision found in the new covenant, the conditions of the Palestinian covenant, and the eternal and sure hope of the Davidic covenant. Any Israelite could get in. Don't miss that. This is the hope for Israel. Any Israelite could lay hold of the future hope of life eternal in the promised land under the rule of the eternal Davidic house, throne, and kingdom. Any Israelite could be saved. All he had to do was meet the conditions of the Palestinian covenant. Repentance and faith. Repentance and singular devotion to God. The entire contents of biblical history crystallize around the eight major covenants. The Bible is covenant. It is a covenant document. But wait, now wait, I'm not done. I am not finished. I told you I'm going longer today than before. It'd be right about here if somebody asked, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, what about the Gentiles? We've been looking at God's work through the covenants from Abraham to Christ, and that deals almost exclusively with Israel. Well, what about the Gentiles during the time of the Old Testament? Paul says in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, the Gentiles were strangers of the covenants of promise. Yeah. Strangers of the covenants of promise. They were not strangers of all covenants. So let's talk about Gentile salvation very briefly and the original covenants. Gentile salvation, the relationship of Gentiles to God, is inextricably tied even today, even today, to the initial covenants given prior to Abraham. We start with the Edenic covenant. This is God who covenanted with man in the Garden of Eden. God charged man with the responsibility. He gave man authority in creation to carry out that responsibility. So he gets a responsibility, and he gets authority to carry out the responsibility. Call it a stewardship. So God dispensed a stewardship to man, and the formal legal mechanism God used to dispense the authority and the responsibility was the covenant. Genesis one twenty seven and 28, God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And within that context, God gave man provision in that new stewardship, and he gave him a prohibition, a law. Genesis two fifteen to 17 "...the Lord God took man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, "...of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die." So God established a conditional covenant with man based on one law. Do not eat of that tree." And notice it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, keep that tucked away in the back of your mind, the knowledge of good and evil. Notice the pronouncement of the death penalty if man should should disobey. Okay, it's clearly stipulated. In the day that you eat thereof, you're going to die. Now, this first covenant is the Edenic covenant of which C.I. Schofield wrote when he mentioned how Scripture crystallizes around the covenants. Here's his quote. He says, the Edenic covenant the first of the eight great covenants of scripture which condition life and salvation and about which all scripture crystallizes has seven elements now we'll see later that the eight great covenants of scripture they go beyond just life and salvation okay but the quote stands as given these covenants do condition life and salvation as we see in the edenic covenant and the two that follow we know of course that man sinned genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 he broke the edenic covenant god said don't eat of that tree he ate of that tree All right, that resulted in a new covenant. It resulted in a new legal and binding arrangement that God made with man. It's the Adamic covenant. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. God covenanted with man again after the fall. Now, many people refer to this this formal arrangement, this legal arrangement that God made with man in Genesis 3 as a curse, and it is, but it goes beyond just a curse because we see elements of a new stewardship, along with provision for salvation. So let's talk about the salvation aspect first, because we already have. In Genesis 3 and 4, we see God instituting the Old Testament the first system of substitutionary sacrifices for the remission of sins. This falls within the stipulations of the Adamic covenant. So again, we see a a testament is a covenant, but a covenant is not a testament. The, The Adamic covenant included the Old Testament. The Old Testament is couched in the, in the words of the, old, the, the Adamic covenant. God himself established a system. It says in Genesis 3.21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. So God kills an animal instead of killing Adam, and he uses the skins of the animal to clothe, to cover sinful man. So we see man immediately, right after that, following this system in order to maintain a right relationship with the Lord. God required a substitutionary blood sacrifice. The death penalty was pronounced on sin and sinners, and therefore someone had to die, the testator. And God required faith in that substitutionary sacrifice for the remission of sins. Genesis 4.4, 4, Abel brought of the firstling of his fro- flock the fat thereof, so he killed the, the, the animal. The Lord had respect unto Abel's offering. We see in Hebrews 11.4 that faith was involved. Hebrews 11.4 says, "...by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain." And that means, this is, this is what Paul was referring to in Hebrews 9.22, that almost all things are purged with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so God sets up that First Testament. And then God separates man from himself. Genesis 3.22-24, he kicks him out of the garden. And he leaves man with no other law to guide him except his new-found innate ability to know good and evil. Genesis 3:22 to 24. And the Lord God said, "Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him from the garden of Eden." To till the ground from whence he was taken, so drove so he drove out the man, and he placed him, placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And so the Adamic covenant established, among other things, this moral law of man's conscience, as the law that would guide him and ultimately judge him during this time immediately after the fall. But notice also, according to Scripture. This law of conscience is still in effect today. It says in Romans 2.14-16, For when the Gentiles—remember, we're talking about Gentiles. They're outside the law. They're outside the covenants of promise. The Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience— Also bearing witness in the thoughts and meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Salvation for a Gentile begins, even today, folks, even today. Salvation for a Gentile begins with the Edenic and the Adamic covenants. He is condemned, the Gentile, condemned to death because he was born in sin, Adam, Edenic covenant and because he sinned willfully and continually by violating the conscience God gave to guide him and rule over him under the Adamic covenant. That's the Gentile. We have one more covenant that was given to all mankind, the Noahic Covenant. It's found in Genesis 6 and then later in Genesis 9. Under the Noahic Covenant, God charged man with governing his own society, curbing sin, if you will, Through civil or human government. God gave man the authority of the death penalty. It says in Genesis 9 6, and again, we're not going to go into the details yet. It just says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. When God delegated to man this authority to take the life of another human being who murdered a fellow man, God delegated to man all lesser included authority to govern over the lesser crimes in society. This law, just like the moral law of conscience, is still in effect today. This is is Romans 13, 1-5. When Paul talks in Romans 13, 1-5 about the authorities that be, he is hearkening back to the Noahic Covenant. Paul says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are are ordained of God. When were they ordained of God? They were ordained of God in the Noahic Covenant of Genesis 9. Verse 2 says, For whosoever whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. That's, that's Romans 13, 1-5. Titus 3, 1 says the same thing. Paul says to Titus, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 2:13 and 14, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That's a commandment, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And so men, all men everywhere, will be held accountable by God for the relationship and response to the government and its laws in the nation in which they live. This was established in the Noahic Covenant, and it is an eternal covenant. Man, from Genesis 9 onward, will always be subject to an external political government with laws and statutes that we are required to obey as long as the laws do not contradict God's laws. So let's summarize some of this. What do you think? These covenants in the Gentiles in the Old Testament, how did God deal with the Gentiles in the Old Testament? Well, from Genesis 12 on, the Gentiles were excluded from the covenants of promise that God gave to Israel exclusively. The Gentiles, they lived under the laws of the Adamic, and the Noaic covenants, the laws of conscience, Adamic, and civil or human government, Noahic. And when they broke those laws, violating their conscience or breaking a civil law, the Adamic covenant provided the Old Testament provision of animal sacrifices to cover their sin. God established this pattern with Adam and Eve. We saw in Genesis 3.21. Abel in Genesis 4.4 4 shows us the same pattern in practice. It's a substitutionary blood sacrifice. Hebrews 11.4 says it was offered in faith. And Job. Don't forget Job. Job shows us the pattern in the normal daily life of a Gentile outside the Abrahamic covenant of promise during the Old Testament. You remember, Job was a Gentile, and Job lived during the latter half of the book of Genesis, around the time of Jacob and his 12 sons, who we call the patriarchs. And so again, here we make the observation. Even Gentile history recorded in the Bible, outside the covenants of promise, even Gentile history crystallizes around the covenants. So there's eight major covenants in Scripture. The Bible is a covenant corpus. It's a body, it's a collection of covenants, because its contents are structured around eight major covenants God made with man. The eight major covenants indicate the major stages in God's progressive revelation to man. God did not give all of his revelation to man in w- at one time. He did not give all of Scripture to man at once. God gave his revelation progressively throughout history as he's unfolding his plan and program and creation. And that progress of Revelation generally follows the establishment of the eight major covenants that God made with man. The Edenic Covenant, the Adamic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. So, hey, what is the Bible? The Bible is a covenant corpus. It's a body, it's a collection of covenants. That's what Scripture is by nature and its formal character. How could we miss that? First, the Bible is a book made up of two testaments. A testament is a covenant that requires the death of a testator for it to be legally of force. The Old Testament, Adam to the cross, it involved the death of various testators in a a sacrificial system of animals. The New Testament, from the cross onward, it involves the death of the testator, Jesus Christ, and his once-for-all sacrificial death on Calvary. So at its most basic, most fundamental level, at its two-part division, its two-part structure. The Bible is covenant. It's a collection of two testaments, two covenants. And secondly, what we just saw, we saw the Bible is a book whose entire contents, they crystallize around the eight major covenants God made with man. The Bible is a book of covenants. It is a covenant book. It is a covenant corpus. The Bible is covenant. How Harless He said it this way, humankind related to God by covenant. The concept of covenant is critical to the understanding of the cultural and historical context of Scripture. And because of this, because of the very nature of the Bible, look, if we want to develop an introductory study of the Bible, if we want an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole, and I do. I want an introductory study. I want to study the Bible as a structure, unified whole. We need to understand, first of all, what the Bible is. And sadly, this seems to be quite the problem in modern Christianity and in modern churches. For most people today, the Bible is a book to make you feel good or to make you a better person. It's a love letter from God to teach you how to live your best life. Now, few are the believers who understand the Bible as covenant and its contents as covenant stipulations dispensed by God to man in order that we might know what our Creator and King expects of us, His stewards, His servants that He placed in charge of His household. And I'm going to refer to Hal Harless again. He indicates that this problem of of the ignorance of the, the covenants, the problem with the covenants here, this problem exists in both major theological camps today. Look, after the Reformation and the initial building out of systems of theology, two major systems emerged. Most Reformation Protestants that would call themselves Reformed or Calvinistic, they generally ascribe to the system of theology that's called Covenant Theology. And we're gonna most certainly be discussing this more in depth later. Covenant theology. The other major system of theology that's popular, it's popular among those who interpret the Bible normally or literally, it's called the system of dispensationalism. And Harless points out the problem of biblical covenants in both of these theological systems, in both of these theological camps. On the one hand, he says. Covenant theology is guilty of creating covenants for which there is no solid biblical basis. You see, people who follow covenant theology refuse to recognize the eight major biblical covenants, and rather they invent two covenants, and sometimes three. They're called theological covenants rather than biblical covenants because they're made up, and they make up these theological covenants to bend the Bible to their system. But then Harlis points the finger at the dispensationalist and he says on the other hand dispensationalists tend to slight the covenants to be sure dispensationalists do not deny the biblical covenants nevertheless they do tend to ignore them and then he finally states his criticism clearly he says Dispensationalism is to be criticized in that that it has not clearly, consistently, and unequivocally asserted the divine covenants as the basis of God's governing arrangements. Did you get that? Dispensationalism is to be criticized because it has not clearly, consistently, and unequivocally asserted that these eight divine covenants are the very basis of God's governing arrangements. God's governing arrangements are his dispensations. The basis of dispensations are the divine covenants. So look, We are to be criticized because we don't clearly, consistently, and unequivocally assert these divine covenants as the basis of God's governing arrangements. Okay, we should own that, but I propose we change that. I propose we let the Bible speak for itself. I propose we pay attention to Scripture in its entirety as a whole and in its details. I propose we strive to be like young young Samuel. You remember 1 Samuel 3.19? Samuel grew the Lord was with him and did not and, and Samuel did let none of his words fall to the ground As I said at the beginning what I want to do is develop an introductory study of the Bible and its structure as a unified whole The covenants are obviously going to play a major role in the development of the study but we also need to look at the unifying theme behind the covenants what what is it what is that one thing that God is doing throughout history through the covenants. We need to address in detail the results of the covenants in the lives of people in history, and that includes us. Surely these covenants resulted in man being charged with something, and because of that, we should flesh out in some detail just what the implications are for those who are affected by the covenants. And finally, I think all of this ultimately begs the question of why. Why did God do all of this? Think about biblical history from God's perspective. Think about the pain, the anger, the irritation, the wrath, the sacrifice, the sorrow. Why why do it in the first place? Especially since God is omniscient, He knew what was coming. You know, systematic theology, specifically theology proper, it teaches us that God is totally and completely independent. God needs nothing. God needs no one. God did not need us. God was not lonely in eternity past, so he made Adam and Eve to have a buddy. No. God did not need us. He did not need creation. He did not need any of the problems or the heartache that we cause or we caused and we still cause. So why did he do it? Why do it at all? What's the point? We should at least try to answer that question. And I think we can. I think we can answer that question with certainty, with the certainty of the words of truth that God gave us in Scripture. Now that we know what the Bible is, it is a covenant corpus, it is a book of covenants, I'd like to ask and try to answer another related question. Lord willing, look, Lord willing, we are likely going to invest a significant amount of time and effort in developing this study. At least I am. Maybe you'll listen to it, maybe you won't. As a matter of fact, um I, al- I already have about 2 or 3 years of reading and writing down notes on the topic. So look, we g- I you and me, you or me, me, us there's going to be some time and effort invested in this study. Why do it? Why go to the bother? Why study the Bible? Why invest the time? Why invest the effort into a project like this? That is what I would like to answer in the next lesson. So we took a little bit more time today. Thank you for listening. It's Theology 101. There's depth to scripture, but I still think there's simplicity to scripture if we just allow the Bible to say what it says. If you're interested in more of my studies in English, you can check them out on my website, theology101.net. Out on my website, there's a contact page. Send me a message, learn the Bible, do what it tells you, and please come back for more Theology 101.